to infinity and beyond. The famous words of Buzz Lightyear, the Disney character from the movies of Toy Story. Think about that phrase. It's a repeated phrase of Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond. The phrase makes us smile. I think the first time I heard it, I smiled to infinity and beyond. But scripture tells us we're to take every thought captive. Let's take a thought. Let's look at that phrase to infinity and beyond and ask the question, is it in fact a true statement that there is something beyond infinity? Well, obviously, I think that's why we smile. On a definitional level, it's fundamentally, essentially untrue. Start the car, Mildred. He just questioned a Disney character. Yep, I did. You see, infinity plus one is an impossibility. If you can, in your mind, go to the highest, loftiest number imaginable, I'm asking you to imagine that number, and think of it as an infinite number, you can't add one to it. You can't say infinity plus one, because by definition, if you can add something, if you can add anything to infinity, you didn't have infinity. An infinite number means a count that never ends. You never get to the end of numbering when you're talking about an infinite number. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. There is the first word in this verse, O, and I've spoken on this before. What an O it is that the understanding and the revealing of the gospel through Romans chapters 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul is not some unmoved, lofty, uh, elite theologian who doesn't live on planet Earth. He grasps all that he has grasped, and all he can do is thunder out an O, at least with his quill. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, he writes. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Verse 36 is a thunderous verse. It tells us that everything comes from Him. All things are from Him. All things are through Him and all things are to Him. And if any element of those three components are not true, the final words of the verse would also not be true. It's because all things are from him, through him, and to him, that to him belongs all the glory. To him be glory forever. Amen. Back to verse 33, the ESV renders the Greek words here, unsearchable, 
and unfathomable in English. Unsearchable, unfathomable. Verse 34 speaks of God's mind. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And it's a question, and it's a rhetorical question. It's repeated with another question in verse 35. Another rhetorical question, and it's obvious what the answer is. Who's been the Lord's counselor? No one. God has never needed advice. He never has had to say to the angels, look, I've got an idea. What do you guys think? Um, he is infinite in his knowledge. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Uh, God has never set up a counseling session with anyone to try and be counseled. I need, I need some counsel. Let's get all the angels. See if you can help me on this. Never. He has always known everything. You see, the Bible declares this to be our God. God not only knows the end, he declares the end. When? Just before the end? No, from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 46. Go there in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46. If you're able to turn, please do so. I want this to be fresh in our minds. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9 Remember the former things of old, God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. There aren't any other gods. God knows of no other and declares there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he tells us, the kind of God he is, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the God of the Bible. He not only knows the end, he declares the end from the beginning. He has exhaustive knowledge. Back a little way to Psalm 139. 139. Psalm 139. Familiar phrase, familiar verse. Verse 4. Well... Actually, let's go back to verse 1. It's good for us. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Here's verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, Yahweh, you know it altogether. So God knows, before a word is ever spoken, what the word will be. He knows it altogether. He has what we call, in theology, omniscience. comes from two words sandwiched together, omni, or omni. It means all, 
and science that means knowledge. And so omniscience is all knowledge. It's the property of having complete or maximal knowledge, exhaustive knowledge. There's not a thing he doesn't know. He knows everything. And get this, he's always known everything. On to the New Testament. We've looked in Romans. Let's go to 1 John. There's a little phrase I'd like you to see in your Bible. 1 John chapter 3. And it makes a statement about God. Verse 19, by this, this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Look at this, four words in English. And he knows everything. There it is. He knows everything. Is there anything not covered when the scripture says he knows everything? Is there something he doesn't know? No, no, don't miss that. Don't miss that. He knows everything. Matthew, back to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10. Look with me in verse 29. Jesus speaking again, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I used to think in reading this last verse, verse 30, that when we brush our hair or we comb our hair and some of the hairs end up on the brush or on the, um, the comb, that he knows how many hairs ended up on the comb or ended up on the brush. Maybe there was three one day or seven another day or one the next. He knows how many hairs uh, falling or on the comb or on the brush, but take a look. That's not what is said here. It's, it's that, but it's more than that. It is that, but it's much more than that. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So imagine someone with a full set of hair. They have thousands and thousands of hairs. And Jesus said, the hairs of your head are all numbered. So not only does he know that there was five, there were five or there were seven or there were one hair ending up on the comb or on the brush. He knows which hairs ended up on the comb or on the brush. And so he would say if there's seven uh, hairs that ended, on, ended up on the brush, he would know which number of hair it was. So hair number 2407 ended up on the brush Hair number 322 ended up on the brush, and so we go on. He knows the numbering of the hairs, not just that the hairs are numbered, but 
in the sense of he knows how many hairs someone has, he knows which hair went where. That's all the implication of what we're told here. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We can't get away from God. In fact, this omniscience of God is not good news for the sinner because he knows us through and through. We often say, God knows my heart. Yeah, and that's the problem. The heart is deceitful above all things. Imagine all things in terms of their deceptive power and making a list of deceptive things. God's assessment is the heart is more deceitful than any of them. It's deceitful above all things. So the top of the list of things that deceive is a heart. So to say God knows my heart is actually not good news. He knows us through and through. We were in Psalm 139. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Again, it's a comfort to us as believers But how precious are the thoughts of God towards us. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. How is that possible? The amount of sand in the earth, each grain of sand, colossal amount of singularity of sand. A little speck of sand. And that's the kind of thought level that God is capable of. Thought after thought after thought after thought after thought after thought, on and on and on and on. Again, it's the psalmist's way of saying what we say in theology. God is infinite. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. That's a great comfort. Let's capture this. Let's delve deeper into this as much as we can with our finite minds. And when I say finite, it means exactly that. It's not, we don't possess infinite knowledge. God does, we don't. There's a vast, vast chasm between finite and infinite. Infinite. It's so vast we cannot even determine or even calculate it. We, we, we just can't. It is impossible for us as finite creatures to even grasp, put our arms around the concept of infinity. We don't need a beyond. There isn't a beyond. Infinity and beyond, no. Just trying to grasp infinity. There is no beyond infinity. Think of the knowledge of a man. 
Think of all the things a man accumulates in the way of knowledge in a lifetime. Think of the knowledge of man, think of the knowledge of women, boys and girls, think of the knowledge of all men throughout history and let's try to calculate that on a piece of paper in terms of an inch in height. Just draw a line from the bottom of the page upwards an inch and let that represent all the knowledge of all men in all time. How far would we have to draw to accurately portray God's knowledge? Well, it's not an inch and a half. It's not two inches or three or 38 or it's not even upwards of a mile. We go way off the page. Three miles, 37 miles, 370 miles perhaps. No, if we were to try to accurately portray infinite knowledge, the knowledge that God has in comparison to man, it's something that would be so high, so lofty, that it goes into outer space. It goes past the moon, through the galaxy, through the universe, to the stretches of far, deep space, outer space, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and never stops. While the knowledge of man is still that inch of territory on a piece of paper. Recently, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference in Idaho. And uh, for the Sunday afterwards, we stayed on and I was really blessed with the Sunday school, the adult Sunday school lesson taught by Pastor Dan Phillips. And I want to kind of rehearse some of the things he said. I'd love for us to wrap our head around this because this is where this comes down to us. He, He was speaking about God's knowledge, how he is infinite. And he was saying something like this, when an infinite person does anything, that infinite person, by the way, there's only one infinite person, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in person. But when an infinite person does anything, that infinite person does that one thing with all of his focus, all of his attention as he's doing that thing and every other thing he does. And that's the thing about being infinite. He does all that he does with all his attention, all of his focus, and he does that when he's doing any other thing. He's infinite and is able to do that. And I remember Pastor Phillips saying, perhaps you've got a an attention like this, fairly small. And then he spoke about his own attention span and that was even smaller. And he said, uh, we can do one thing at a time if we really try hard, but that's not how God operates. Being infinite, God can do everything he does as if it's the only thing he's doing. Think about that. Being infinite He can do everything he does as if it's the only thing he ever does. 
and he does everything he does as if each thing is the only thing he's doing. Here's where it comes down to us. Because God is infinite, what he did for everybody, he did for each. As if each was the only person he was doing it for. When Christ died for God's elect people, for those God chose out of the world to save them, he died for countless people from all nations, tribes, tongues, and men and women alike, boy and girl. He did that for all of them, and he did that for each of them. How can he do that? Because he's infinite. Being an infinite person, what he did for all, he did for each, as if each was the only person he was dying for. Of course, they weren't the only person he was dying for. But all of his love, all of his love, went to each person he died for. All his life is given to each person he redeemed. And so, in the New Testament, the point Pastor Phillips was making was when we read scriptures like Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And normally, we would understand, and Paul writes in a way that he speaks of Christ dying for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, the normal way that Paul referred to the death of Christ was in a corporate sense. But here, he makes it very, very personal and personal to him. He says, Christ loved me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Not because Paul was special, but because God is infinite. He does all that he does with all of his focus and with an infinite mind can be giving all of his attention to me even as he's doing what he does for all God's people. It's, it's a beautiful thought. All of his attention, all of his love went to each person Christ died for, and that's why Paul could write what he wrote. All of his life is given to each person he, he redeemed. And so, Pastor Phillips brought this out. Paul can look at that death of the infinite person of Christ and say that in dying for all his elect, he died for me. And in loving all his elect, he loved me. Because I'm special? No, because he's special. Because he's infinite. And he can do everything he does as if it's the only thing he does. I have to admit, when, when I heard that, uh, my, my, my jaw probably looked 
the same as it did moments before, but figuratively speaking, my jaw was on the ground. Wow, I don't think I'd ever seen this this, this clearly before. And since that uh, Sunday school lesson, I've thought of it every day. The way we connect with God is by faith in His Word. God reaches out to me with His Word. I connect with Him by believing His Word personally. And again, one of the points Pastor Phillips made is that's what false teaching does. It rebels against that. Satan doesn't want us to have a relationship with God on God's terms, which is his word. Pastor Phillips brought it out that liberalism denies to the word the place that it gives itself. Mysticism wants to bypass the word and look for an experience of God apart from the way God has told us he deals with us, his word. Anything that goes above and beyond God's word is a false message, false source. That's what liberalism seeks to do, and it's what mysticism and the charismatic movement seeks to do. It's a denigration of God's word to go beyond it. You, you need the word, but you need much more than that for a spiritually dynamic relationship. But again, we need to go to God on his terms. He reaches out to us by his word and faith grasps hold of that word. We don't need new revelations. We need his word. God has spoken. The canon is closed. John Frame said it so, so well here on this subject, God's speech to man is real speech, real speech. Very much like one person speaking to another. God speaks so that we can understand him and respond appropriately. Imagine God speaking to you right now as realistically as you can imagine perhaps standing at the foot of your bed at night. He speaks to you like your best friend, your parents or your spouse. There's no question in your mind as to who it is. He's God. Now imagine that when God speaks to you personally, gives you some information or commands you to do something, you'll then be inclined to argue with him. Will you criticize what he says? Will you find something inadequate in his knowledge of the rightness of his commands? I hope not, for that's a path to disaster. When God speaks, our role is to believe, obey, delight, repent, mourn, whatever he means us to do. And our response should be without reservation from the heart. Once we understand, we must not hesitate. We may at times find occasion to criticize one another's words, but God's words are not the subject of criticism. Scripture is playing that this is Scripture is saying that this is the very nature of the Christian life, having God's word and doing it. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Back to Pastor Phillips. He said this, everything we know about God, we know because he's told us through his personal speech. 
all our duties are because God has given us his commands, all his promises, promises of the gospel. By grace alone we're saved, by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We know this because of the promises and the declaration of God's own mouth. When God speaks, there's obligation in the hearer. Not everybody who uh, speaks has authority over us. child doesn't have to listen to someone else's parents, but he must obey his parents. And when God speaks, his power is absolute. The power of his words to create obligation in us is absolute. So when he says rejoice, we're under obligation. Rejoice, I must rejoice. He says rejoice. Well, he does. Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So he tells us to humble myself. I must humble myself. I'm obliged to do that. So let's go back to this concept. An infinite person has spoken. And let's ask this question. When God wrote his word, who did he write it for? All his people, right? All believers of all times, all ages. But remember, the author of Scripture has what kind of mind? An infinite mind. He has exhaustive knowledge and he is infinite. So when he wrote what he wrote for all believers, he wrote what he wrote for each believer, for every believer. Let me quote Pastor Phillips. And so you're saying, are you saying, here we go, that when Isaiah wrote the 40th chapter, when David wrote the 23rd Psalm, when Paul wrote Romans 8, that God had me in mind individually, that God was individually thinking of me and my needs and what he spoke through Paul, these, these words of promise and of encouragement and of love and commitment, undying eternal commitment, he had my name in his mind? Yes. Yes. And so um, that's how God's word to all his people becomes a personal word? God's word to each of his people? Yes. And that's how God's sufficient word for all of his people is his sufficient word for each of us, his people? Yes. Amen. Hear these words of Jesus. It's in the middle of a discussion. We won't jump into the discussion. I'm going to lift these words out. Hopefully, as you look at the context, I'm not ripping them out of their settings so that they mean something other than what was intended. But hear this phrase. You've heard me mention it, I'm sure, a number of times if you've heard me at all. Matthew 22:31. Jesus said, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? 
the context here was a judgment against those who were hearing and had made up their own thoughts and have not come under because they were obliged to do what God had said centuries before. But notice that. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? When you read your Bible, God is speaking. And when you read your Bible, God had you in mind when he said all he said. (laughs) Let me say that again. God had you in mind when he said all he said. When Christ died on the cross, he had all his people in mind. And if you're a believer, he had you in mind. God, being infinite, has infinite knowledge and gives his full attention to everything he does. God can reach anyone with his word. You remember in history, in the fourth century, there's a very devout Christian lady named Monica. She was married to a prominent man who didn't share a Christian faith. He was often very cruel to her, causing her actually physical abuse. And every day she'd go to the church and pray for his conversion. And in fact, later on in his life, he did in fact become a Christian. Yet the pain and anguish her husband caused us seemingly paled into insignificance compared to what she suffered because of her oldest son. Her mother's heart was broken time after time, seeing the reckless life her son was leading. He not only didn't share his mother's faith, but actually would join himself to anti-Christian groups using his very sharp mind to seek to convince others to follow him. He lived a very immoral life. He had a mistress, but left her for another, had a son born out of wedlock named Adiodotus. This is history. Monica was not personally able to convince her son of the truth claims of Christianity, but she determined never to stop praying that he would turn to the Lord. For two decades, this went on. Monica persisting in prayer for her son, seemingly seeing no results. Her son was later to write about all this and tells us that she, that's his mother, wept more for his spiritual death than most mothers weep for the bodily death of their children. She was very distraught one day and she went to see the well-known Bishop Ambrose of Milan to speak about her plight Knowing her anguish of soul, he said, Go your way, and God will bless you, for it's not possible that the son of these tears should perish. That's what he said to her. Now, technically speaking, it is possible, but she took this as great encouragement. She accepted the answer as though it were a word from God himself. Monica's prayers for her son were answered, and very suddenly, one day her son was in a garden experiencing, experiencing much agony of soul because of his sin. God the Holy Spirit was certainly working on him. His 
And in his own writings, he recalled what happened next. Suddenly, he heard the voice of a boy or a girl, he wasn't sure which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over, over and over again, Tola lege, tola lege, which was a Latin phrase that meant, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it, take up, read. Later in his own writings, he recounted these uh, things this way, this incident this way. Immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song, but I could not remember having heard the like. So, damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should light upon. So I quickly returned to the bench where Alipius, his friend, was sitting. For there I put down the apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence I read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's Romans 13, verse 13. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. End of quote. Monica's many years of prayers were answered in a single moment. Her son experienced a dramatic, life-changing conversion to Christ. What Monica could not have known was the impact her son would have, not only on his contemporaries, but on the many generations to come. Her son became one of God's greatest ever gifts to his church, Augustine of Hippo. Some would say it, Augustine of Hippo. He lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. There's no doubt that Augustine was the greatest theologian of the church outside of the New Testament for the first thousand years and arguably is one of the greatest theologians in church history. His writings on the subject of grace would become a massive influence on both Martin Luther, who was himself an Augustinian monk, and John Calvin. God used these men to bring about the greatest move of God in the history of the church, as entire nations were brought under the influence of the gospel in the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Let me wrap with this up with, with this thought. And it's a repeated thought. I've mentioned it before, but I want to just say it again. When God inspired all he has inspired, knowing there's a human author of Scripture, but a divine author as well, Jesus is truly God, truly man. The Bible is truly of man and truly of God. Men were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit in all the writings of Scripture. But when God said all he said, he had you in mind when he said all he said. So as you read your Bible, you can have the most intimate, personal relationship with him. And this word is sufficient. It's necessary and it's sufficient. His sufficient word for all his people, to quote Pastor Dan Phillips, God's sufficient word for all of his people is his sufficient word for each of us, his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, vast, unsearchable, immeasurable, inscrutable. It's impossible for us, the finite, to even wrap our heads around what is infinite. We can't think of eternity and think in terms of, because of our creatureliness, what eternity even is. Where our lifespan to be an inch on a piece of page, piece of paper. We'd have to draw the line of eternity across the paper and across all papers of the world. And were we to go in heights, it would go all the way to the moon, all the way to the stars, out of space, and keep on going and going and going. How important it is that we're right with you for eternity. When we think of you, we think of your infinite mind. How amazing. You thought of us. You thought of us even right now. Right now, this moment, from all eternity, you had us in mind. And every time we read your word, you gave all of yourself, all of your focus, all of your attention. And when we're reading your word now, it's not a dry and dusty thing. It's the living word of God. All scripture is inspired. God breathed. Second Timothy 3.16 In Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful. Write this truth on our hearts. May we always live in the good of it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.